0: I mean, I have Prosecco, but it's, like, straight out of the cupboard. It's not even chilled. And it's literally because, um, like, there's the housemate changeover happening. And there's, like, that thing where you find all this crap in the back of your cupboard where you're, like, this is not even mine. Like, I don't know how long this has been here, but I should either, like, eat this random can of minestrone or throw it in the bin. And then you're, like, I guess I'm having minestrone for lunch, like, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's my podcasting experience. I guess I'm drinking a Bottega Gold um, from a tiny bottle while podcasting. Why not? Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. It's awful. <laughs> Sorry, Vitega Gold. That was... We, we weren't actually... Um, we're Um, not sponsored. You might be surprised to know. <laughs> Today, this podcast is not brought to you by Vitega Gold. <laughs> this podcast is Plants and pets. by the way. Um, we usually talk about plants somewhere along the way at one point. Um, I am Tegan, and that is Yoram. I'm just saying his name for him now, because every time I try to pause for him to introduce himself, he just doesn't, so...
1: Yeah, I'll just be quiet in a corner and be like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm also here.
0: And the thing is, like, it's weird for people who are listening to the podcast that you don't chime in, but it's even weirder for me, because, like, I can see your beady eyes just staring at me, like, in anticipation. It's like there doesn't need to be anticipation you could just like do the thing and like <laughs> 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 what are you anticipating i'm anticipating <laughs> what are you
1: doing <laughs> i'm anticipating your opening moderation and um trying to I figure out what is stage, the point like, when you're when 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 does your period come as in the end mm, of the sentence and yeah um i i mean usually it's like
0: what eight, seven, eight years of me screaming at you to like not interrupt women. <laughs> and now you're like
1: afraid. No, Now I'm afraid to interrupt women. I, nah, I think you just like a woman. You know.
0: <laughs> I think you're just like micro-napping every time. There's like a small brief pause. It's, like, okay.
1: Oh my God, I'm so tired. I'm so <laughs> yeah. tired. I thought like the first topic of today was that um, we had a long weekend here in Germany uh, with a holiday on Monday. Pentecost? So I, I, I don't know what it's called. I think, I don't, I'm I not even 100% sure what it is in German.
0: Yeah, so I think, like, last week there was, like, um, Christi Himmelfahrt, which is, like, Mm -hmm. Christi is farting to the Himmel, so farted to, like, travel, and he's going to the Himmel, which is the heavens, and it's my favorite name for a holiday. It's when Jesus goes back up again, like, he Mm -hmm. dies, and he comes alive again, and then he, like, hangs around on Earth for a bit, and then he goes back up. Um, Ascension, maybe? I think it's Ascension in English. But then after that, after he goes up, Holy Spirit comes down. <laughs> People are talking in tongues, and I think that's what you've hit now. I think that's Pentecost.
1: Okay, yeah. I think it's f- we had Fingsten, that's G- the German word. But I'm not even 100% sure. I just knew that there's like a day off, and I know there's some, something else okay. coming up. There's like also a, a Thursday that's green at one point. Um,
0: but Fingsten also means your wife's birthday is sometime soon. No, that's what my wife's Fingsten birthday is to me, July. Right? Okay. She likes Pfingstrosen, so I'm always like, yeah. whenever Fingston happens, I'm like, okay, I have to think. Dora like, her birthday is soon, it's soon.
1: <laughs> exactly, like, she likes Pfingstrosen, but she's not born around um, Yeah.
0: It's really her own fault. It's,
1: yeah, but so, like, we had this long weekend, and uh, as you do, I plan to do lots of things, because I'm like, oh, now, finally, I have some free time. And I completely overdid it. I'm still exhausted from like <laughs> I had a long weekend, and I feel like I immediately need a weekend to recover. I was like building stuff for the for the van, and my my mother came over. I mean, she was also babysitting. That was helpful, but also then yeah, like you have like social contacts. that's ex- exhausting to some extent. Then we had some friends over for like a little garden meetup um, outside, and uh that also like it's fun it's nice but in the end you still feel a little bit extra tired than if you would have spent a day alone and
0: we're not used to it as well right it's kind of that that retraining for social activity that's a bit
1: and now i'm just like so exhausted (laughs) since then and it's already like what wednesday it's been like um yeah it's been a while now and i'm just like uh, i i'm looking forward for to next weekend hopefully to finally get some rest although like we we booked a holiday in like four weeks time or something with the car where we want to drive and like just a little bit of camping but the car is not ready to be camped in yet so (laughs) i mean that's why
0: you booked the holiday right to like give yourself a hard deadline where it has to be done by
1: but that also means like busy weekends but yeah so (laughs) how's it been for you
0: yeah i also had that like i mean (laughs) Usually before the podcast, I kind of look back at my, like, the selfies I took over the week, you know, my photo (laughs) roll to see what I did. And usually it's like 90% is like photos of me, like, lounging in my bed or like... like, I like
1: that you still take pictures of that every time you do it.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm a single woman. Somebody needs to admire me and sometimes it's just me. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's either like that or it's like... Me like getting as close to making out with cats as I can without actually catching feline herpes. Like it's these are the two <laughs> options on my roll. It's like familiarity with cats or like flopping around the house or like you know maybe photos <laughs> of my plants also. But then I kept on scrolling and this week like last weekend I also did a lot of things. Um, I went like to meet a friend for breakfast, like actual going to a restaurant to have a breakfast That's and so jealous of that. Yeah, that was. I mean, that's the first time in a long time. I've, I've tried to go out for dinner a couple of times in the last month, and it's been freezing cold and awful and horrible. And yeah, that's the, the
1: concept <laughs> of a, of a picnic outside is really only something when it's like blistering hot outside, and you you really don't don't get a chill. or for advertisements, like well, realistically, your
0: con- it's just not for your country. Like I'm sorry, like in Australia, ninety nine percent of the time, or at least in Perth, like it's very rarely not picnic weather except there was like a rule my dad always wanted to go on a picnic on his birthday every single year his birthday it rained like something about his (laughs) birthday anyway um he worships the wrong gods I did that and then I went from there to um like a, a free art exhibition um in in I don't know how to say it probably Barbican Barbican I said it once and a British person laughed at me and now I'm very anxious about the way I pronounce that but it's kind of this um Barbican Barbican <laughs> um, the can for Barbies, um, yeah, it, it's kind of just a space that has like um, bits for art installation. It has some gardens. It has, you know, it's it's sort of a, a really lovely area. And they had a, an installation about sort of like feminism and architecture, and the the sort of idea of designing spaces not just for the default of a male. So that's to do with mm-hmm. like size. So like if everything's kind of aimed at a six foot tall man and you put, like, all the benches at the height that's right for a six-foot man, that might not be correct if, for example, the usage is mainly a woman who's, like, I don't know, half a metre or 30 centimetres shorter. Um, But also just, like, spaces as far as, like, you know, what's needed, what's accessibility, um, you know, access to infrastructure like cooking and children and like again i'm not saying these are like women's things, but i like, just like these kind of thinking in in terms of usage not just in terms of this is how i would do it as a man for a man mm-hmm. um and that was like quite interesting just like a small exhibit um but it was really really nice to go and do something kind of out in culture enjoying being in london and i think like you and i were just talking about this before there's like this weird constantly weird feeling of COVID, not COVID that was happening the whole time um, because I was with a friend and then we're in a restaurant, but then we're wearing masks and then we like have to queue to go into somewhere because there's only a few people allowed in and it's like this kind of strange twilight zone going back, which Mm -hmm. is a bit, which I mean, we're very, we're very lucky to be in that situation that we can be in the twilight zone. um, Yeah. But yeah.
1: But still, it's something where I'm, I'm surprised at how much I have to get accustomed again many of these things that were so standard before and now it's weird like Like, it's like also like mentally weird to get back into the, the the headspace of being social and being around many other people and having like random short interactions and stuff when before you would always like keep a distance try not to engage with too many people um definitely like cover your face and everything and um yeah, it's it's weird not doing that. I had an interview for work yesterday where I was interviewing a person for a podcast, and um, you, we had to take off our masks for the podcast, and like we were both mm. tested with like these these uh, rapid tests and um, like ventilated area and everything. We did as much as we could there, but it was still weird. It was like weird intimate your mouth <laughs> for just like a professional setting where i mean we were just like in an empty meeting room with like two meters between us um You're and like, completely <laughs> Wait, standard we're in stuff a
0: professional setting and i can see your mouth what's happening why are we doing this are we <laughs> eating are we going to make out why am i seeing your mouth hole <laughs> what exactly. is the reason <laughs>
1: exactly like <laughs> i just met you and now we're already taking off our masks it's a little bit so too intimate. fast. Like, i usually <laughs> don't take my mask off on the first date um this is what it feels like now and i mean i think we will get over it quickly but right now it's still in this this phase which is like what are we even doing here this is all i off. mean i
0: wanted to say that the benefit was that you and i were never so socially competent that yeah. it's not like we've lost a lot in the last like i mean
1: yeah, no, it's, it's true
0: it's like my fitness levels my fitness levels have definitely gone down but they were not super high to begin with so i can like blame like work from home and COVID for a certain amount, but realistically
1: <laughs> Yeah, it's not that you went from like <laughs> running a mar- marathon every other week, um, to not being able to run a lot. It's just like from like, a little bit of fitness, at least for me, to like less fit. <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm trying to think of the right like animal analogy. Slugs are definitely in there somewhere, but there's some <laughs> there's some sort of like devolution that's happened that I'm I can't quite grasp.
1: Oh yeah. But I uh I, I, at, the, at the same time it's getting better it's more stuff now I mean it's also like our summer is still taking its time to come but uh, eventually we will be um, having fun outside and having like a good time again I'm really much looking forward to that like in in a week or a bit over a week I get my second shot and then um, I'm I'm free then I won't adhere to any of the rules because <laughs> I am personally immune and so oh I don't care God. for anybody else anymore. Um, <laughs> no. Your arm's
0: opinions are not endorsed by this podcast. <laughs>
1: uh, no, but it's still like a, a moment when I'm looking forward to that. I have like some, a little bit less fear for my health and the people around mm. me. Although I know like there's still yeah, risk. Yeah, it's still careful, but nice still, to... And I will still continue wearing a mask because I, I really enjoy not getting a cold. Yeah. Um, I mean, I haven't had a cold pretty much for over a year, and that's yeah, amazing. I got a
0: mild cold last week, and I'm like, "Am I dying? <laughs> what's <laughs> happening? Like, <laughs> I can't smell very clearly. What's what's that about?"
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm really happy to continue wearing masks uh, independent of COVID. But um, yeah, this, like apart from that, I'm really happy that I don't have to be as afraid anymore. If I encounter people who don't care for masks and who are very selfish, um, then I can be like, okay. These purple these people, people aren't nice, but they're not an immediate threat to me. Um, so that's a feeling that I'm looking forward to.
0: Um, I was listening to the Baby Geniuses podcast, and they were saying the problem is like when everybody's wearing masks, you can tell which people are should be avoided, <laughs> and now you should still avoid them. You just can't tell anymore. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah, in the United
1: just... States, they are dropping more mask mandates, right? Like there's yeah. more, more. They places. have higher
0: vaccination, I think. Done though. Um. Although I did, I mean, this is what I'm really interested in now. Like, it's obviously there's like a lot of problems with the inequality of access to vaccinations. And that just makes it even more frustrating when people have access and are not taking it for like, like, if you have strong beliefs... I happen to think you're wrong, but at least you have strong beliefs. If you're not doing it just because, like, maybe you heard something on Facebook and you just kind of can't be asked going down and getting it done, like, you're the worst kind of person. Um, And I'm kind of interested now about how this, like, play between, like, the public health saying, hey, let's get vaccinated and, and, like, people not having to, and then, like, sort of private incentives, like, oh, if you want to fly to Germany and Germany needs a vaccine passport, oh, if you want to go into this, like, fancy chalet, like, if there's these kind of things. And there was something in Nature Briefing a couple of days ago that they they had sort of a lottery where, like, if you showed your vaccine card, I think it was in the state of Ohio, but I'm not super sure. If you showed your vaccine card, you would enter into a lottery where you could get quite a lot of money. You could even win, like, a full scholarship to college, um, to university. And, like, the amount of people went up 53%, like, week to week, like, when that was announced. So, like, that incentive, which, I mean, it's good. It's a financial gain, but it's it's not a huge... The chance of winning is not super high, right? It's still a lottery. Yeah. It's not like you automatically get a payout. That was already enough to have a huge kick. And I'm, I'm really interested in how many people are in this kind of vague on the fence, I just can't really be bothered situation as opposed to actually being like religiously or morally or whatever opposed um, yeah, it's an to interesting, not being murderous.
1: It's an, it's an interesting social hack. There are some people in Germany that have proposed that sort of as a joke. They were like, when we had this like warning app that's like proximity based and they were like, To get the numbers up, they should just like give away, I don't know, 5,000, 10,000 euros every week to someone, some user of of this app. And I would drive numbers up and it would cost so much less than like any poster campaign or anything where you shoot like a TV commercial or anything like that. All of that is more expensive if you have a campaign going than just like handing out the cash and just being like you use the app, you have a chance of getting the cash. Um, but they were sort of using that as a joke because, like, lotteries are always a little bit like weird. Um, uh, but that
0: seems reasonable. Like that's yeah. It would. I, I feel it, it feels like it would work. And also, like the problem is a lot of the other things, it does get into this fishy zone. Like you don't want to set up a system where you can only go to X place if you have vaccination. This can be like, a compl- like I mean, it has yeah. obvious problems. Um, you don't want that system. But like if people if like fifty percent of people don't want to get vaccinated, I am wondering what will drive those people and I'm curious about what the, yeah. the sort of things that will stimulate people who aren't so keen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's sort of like speaking to the selfish part in a in a personality of being like you can get like personal immediate financial gain. To Mm. the greater common good of having like more immunity in the community um so yeah i think that's it's an interesting idea and depending on on the numbers it could be also economically worthwhile i think because like any other information campaign also costs a lot of money and can might be less effective than just having a raffle yeah it
0: turns out if there's money involved people will share the information for free right like that yeah
1: yeah. And you can have like you can give away like any sort of product and like give us all your personal information and you have a chance of like one in five hundred thousand of winning a pot to boil your pasta in. And oh my god, a pasta pot!
0: I don't have a pasta pot. What yeah, and never pasta? Is like, it red? Here,
1: take take everything. Like contact me every hour with like <laughs> advertisement <laughs> mails as long as I have a small chance of getting that pasta pot. Um, so yeah, I think I would. That's a lottery is not the stupidest idea that i've heard and uh, i think i would like to see that tried more often Uh, let's talk about plants it's the paper of the week and this week you picked the paper tegan what did you pick okay tegan is busy on her phone um if i if you would be here i would take it away for uh, for the rest of the show tegan and your parents could pick it up later but luckily for you there's like some distance between us so the paper today is okay okay, okay. okay do you want to try Tegan? do you want to focus on the little thing that we're doing here
0: <laughs> no i've lost my concentration now <laughs> What is the paper that By my own fault, I've lost my concentration. Um, the papers that I picked is something that came out in eLife recently. It's called Proximity Proteomics in a Marine Diatom. Reveals a putative cell surface to chloroplast iron trafficking pathway. It's by Trinsec and colleagues. Um, and yeah, and it's, in, it's in eLife, I already said that bit. Yeah. And I chose it this time because um, two reasons, basically. We don't talk about diatoms very much. And I don't really know what they are properly. So I thought that would be <laughs> a nice way to make myself look into that a bit more. Um, and um, the the method is seems interesting, this proximity proteomics, which we'll go into a bit later. So mm-hmm. this is one of those things where like, I'm... I'm not super interested in the results because it's not like my personal interest, this pathway, this iron stuff. Um, it is important, but it's just like not f- for me, I would say. But it's really curious to see how they got there and these different methods that I didn't know about very much. So, yeah.
1: yeah, And I feel the same about diatoms that I don't really think about them very often. And then when I researched them, I was like, why am I not thinking about those very often? Um, because they make up like 50% of all oxygen that's produced every year is made by diatoms. So you would after, think it's like the Amazon rainforest, it's I don't know, some other plants, it's grasslands. Um but no, fifty percent like all of that combined is half and the other half is just diatoms in the ocean. Um
0: Yeah, and I have to say I, I do think of diatoms in that in that context. It kind of comes up in my work thing of like diatoms and dinoflagellates like are doing a lot of carbon fixing and working quite hard um but i also yeah i have to sort of look again at which ones the diatoms are and i get them confused with dinoflagellates um which are kind of similar they're like both these kind of single cellular microalgae but diatoms yoram what are they
1: they are these little photosynthetic single-celled organisms um microscopic uh, between uh, i think 0.5 micrometers to 500 micrometers um, in size, so almost like half a millimeter the, are the largest ones and um, down to the really like the microscopic level where you can only see them with a light mi- microscope or electron microscope. And um, I wrote down that there are algae that live in houses made of glass um, that I think I found that quote on like diatoms.org. Yeah, I um, think
0: Joram um, Googled what is a diatom because I found that exact thing when I Googled what is a diatom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I just typed in diatoms, not even a question. Yeah, just I like
1: diatoms, <laughs> give me anything. And yeah. I found that quote and that's because they have a shell that's made of silica mm-hmm. um, and silica is the same stuff that's in glass. Um, so Also sand. Yeah, glass
0: it's, is just fancy sand.
1: Yeah, it's like a fancy way of arranging the mole- atoms that are in sand in a way that it becomes transparent, and so they have these like really intricate shells. And you can, if you Google diatoms and you look for like the electron microscopy images, it's again one of these cr- crazy organisms that makes these like super geometric shapes mm. and very very different shapes depending on the species that look just so fascinating um, because you would not imagine that like a biological system would come up with such a geometry based f- like fixed glass structure in yeah that's
0: so that's the thing like with the diatoms and the dinoflagellates remembering the difference between the two diatoms have these beautiful like glass geometric they, they look like chemical structures because they have this silica shell and they basically look like Christmas ornaments to me like they're very fine some of them are even star shaped like it's, it's really something you would hang on your Christmas tree Whereas dinoflagellates are, like, kind of similar in what they're doing. They're also, like, producing a lot of oxygen, etc., etc., in the oceans. Um, but they look more like sort of angry nuts or seeds that have little spikes on them. And that like they look like those things that are designed to either, like, hook onto the fur of an animal or to, like, stab you in the foot when you walk on them. So <laughs> this is how we will now remember diatoms are beautiful, glasshouse algae, and dinoflagellates are angry and mean. Mm-hmm. That's it take my message um, other,
1: like we <laughs> find them usually in in water mm. that m- most of them in marine environments so in the sea but there's also like freshwater diatoms and sometimes even in like muddy waters there can be diatoms as well so wherever there's water um there's a chance that you have diatoms there and in and the, the thing ocean is, like
0: even the muddy ones they're still beautiful you guys <laughs> yeah
1: like they're all <laughs> all uh, all diatoms are beautiful Yeah, diatoms
0: Uh,
1: too. (laughs) And in the ocean, they make up half of all organic matter. In the ocean, is diatoms. So if you take like a random sweep of ocean, any any volume, you will find some like blue whales and stuff in there, but Mm. the
0: half of all (laughs) the organic (laughs) matter in your
1: sample will be diatoms.
0: Yeah, actually, I, I, I can almost guarantee that if you take a cup full of water, you're much more likely to have diatoms in there than you are to have blue whales. Like, that's the Tegan guarantee. I'm going to say that right now. <laughs> Bits of blue may- whale, maybe. Like, things that came out of a blue whale, maybe. <laughs> yeah. By and
1: large. <laughs> probably, if, like, if you count diatoms and if you count the blue whales in your sample, um, you will be probably finding way more diatoms in there
0: numerical uh, advantage there yeah.
1: which also means that like their shells they sink to the bottom as these sediments and they make like these massive layers of sediments on the ocean floor that are just diatom shells
0: oh that was the other thing i wanted to mention that the the wiki article for diatoms apart from being pretty cool because it has a couple of pictures of these these beautiful little christmas tree ornaments i mean in the, in the wiki article they almost look like um android electro like the android 3 they've got this kind of like neon look to them um but it's also like very beautifully written i would say like Mm -hmm. the shells of dead diatoms can reach as much as a half mile deep on the ocean floor and the entire amazon basin is fertilized annually by 27 million tons of diatom shell dust it's very um oh transported by transatlantic winds it's it's very poetic isn't it
1: uh what I found, um, what 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 I learned here is that, like the word diatom, to me, I always thought of like two atoms. Mm-hmm. Die as like the syllable for two, and then two atoms. Like, why are they called two atoms? Like, I was definitely of more, like- have more atoms than two.
0: Okay.
1: What did what did you think?
0: <laughs> I was going to say that was a stupid, like coloring something with tomatoes. But you carry on. That was it wasn't it wasn't a useful thing to say, and you're right but, to keep I talking. Mean,
1: the Wikipedia gives like the origin of the word, and to be honest, it doesn't help me uh, much more. It's it comes from like cut in half, um, mm. and I don't know why they're called cut in half. Um, maybe because they're symmetrical, guess- they have like some like uh, yeah. symmetry to them. So maybe the the first images that were created of those by light microscopes they always had like these symmetrical shapes and that's why they were like did, like drawings where they were cut in half or i i, I don't know but that's like i was like i came from like a very naive understanding to sort of the correct understanding without really getting it <laughs> with the name
0: also, I like that um there's a there's a short bit that explains that actually Jurassic Park should have featured diatoms. Mm. The oldest fossil evidence for diatoms is the late Jurassic.
1: Yeah, although I think it's much less scary to run away from like a five hundred micrometer tall diatom in a in a that that's kind of wild. Yeah,
0: but you know, like, the thing with Jurassic Park is they already always, like, genetically modify the diatom to give it, like, frog DNA and also, <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know, teddy bear DNA and now it's, like, it's a killer T-Rex. It's always the genetic modification that will get you in the end. It's not the original organism. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Anyway, let's talk about iron. Iron is hard to get. <laughs> <Yeah>. I'll say. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's like for us humans as well, right? Like you have to drink all kinds of disgusting juices to get more iron Oh, I take
0: iron pills, yeah. Which also fun fun for your digestion. (laughs) Yeah,
1: exactly. (laughs) Uh, But iron is really important to have. I mean, we humans, we have it in our blood most famously, but not only in our blood. Um, And uh, there's lots and lots of um, processes in organisms that are Relying on on iron ions um, as cofactors, so they are found like in photosynthesis. Um, they there is like the iron sulfur clusters, for example, that are very important. Um, then it's like in DNA replication, in respiration, they are very important in the uptake of nitrogen, be it as nitro like elemental I- nitrogen or nitrates. Um, so lots and lots of like crucial core functions. Of an organism rely on some sort of iron involvement
0: yeah and iron in the I'm saying iron very pointedly because the problem is we now have to say that iron in nature is found as an ion. <laughs> <laughs> um, so iron comes basically with a plus two pluses or three pluses um, and the problem is iron two with two pluses is, is quite easy to get biologically whereas iron three is basically rust um, which it's if you've tried to eat rust really hard to get any nutrients from that um trust me um and this is actually something that became problematic historically speaking so back in the day even before the dinosaurs were around if you can believe it um there was a ton of iron everywhere you know mostly in the water but probably everywhere um and it was in this iron two plus form and this was like biologically available everybody could just like get in on the iron but then oxygen happened and apart from like really killing everybody who wasn't into oxygen which a lot of a lot of organisms that were not so happy about the oxygenation event from photosynthesis happening and then all these plants like Stealing all the carbon dioxide, making oxygen. Um, But it also made this iron 2 get oxidized into rust, iron 3, which which is not very bioavailable. And then suddenly iron became this limiting thing where like in some cases you just like that was what was preventing you from growing, not being able to get iron.
1: Yeah. And so organisms had a very strong um incentive to like this very strong selection pressure to develop something that can help them to get more iron. And so uh there's lots and lots of different iron uptake mechanisms that evolved during that time um because suddenly it became this very valuable resource. And so um they usually bind like some sort of organic molecule to the iron. Sometimes it's just stabilizing it, sometimes it's binding it to something else. Um, so that they can take it up and then put it in the process where they need it, be it, for example, respiration um, or photosynthesis. And um, diatoms are no different. They use a, um, a g- group of molecules called phytotransferenes that can bind to iron on the surface of the cell and then put it into the cell. And that's very important to them. That That's often the limiting factor as you said the limiting factor that um, prevents them from growing f- quicker is how much iron they can get from outside the cell into the cell
0: yeah i think this is quite common in um, certain areas of the ocean there's just like iron is the, the limiting factor in like i think like a quarter of the world's oceans or something like this anyway yeah. i got distracted a bit because i was thinking of that butterfly did i tell you about the butterfly already the <laughs> no. one that like drinks blood uh, yeah. i think i had this discussion
1: yeah yeah i like whenever i, I think of people saying that butter- butterflies are these say Beautiful, delicate creatures. I think of the ones that drink blood. Um, yeah. That
0: is p- that. That image is just like constantly in my mind. This idea of a butterfly who's like, you know what, just <laughs> just gonna try this this blood drinking for a little bit, and it's it's not doing it to get iron. It just wants salt, apparently. <laughs> yeah. I, just just we- go
1: to Tesco's and get some salt, you butterfly. Did we?
0: Well, did we have this discussion that so the male butterflies are the only ones who drink blood. They do it because they need salt. The female butterflies don't drink blood because apparently they get it from the semen.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, we
0: had to. Yeah, I think which I'm is lost. like, if there are the two alternatives, <laughs> let's drink some blood. Like. <laughs> Realistically. Anyway, um, so this paper is not just about iron and it's not just about beautiful algae that live in houses made of glass. It's also about a method which is related to proteomics. And proteomics is just um, the measurement of all the proteins you find in an organism in a cell. When we say all, we're being a little bit dramatic because usually we have like technical limits of how many proteins we can measure, but we want to be getting a few hundred to a few thousand. We don't want to be getting like one or two.
1: Yeah, and usually we use like very very fine scales for that. These are called uh, mass spectrometers. They can is in in the end they can tell you the weight of a molecule, and then you can use fancy programming um, to figure out what that actually relates to um in the end you have look up, look up tables essentially where it's like okay you find the, the weight of five kilograms so that must be a hemoglobin very simplified <laughs> um, Wow. but you do very fine weight measurements and then you relate that to to the proteins and then you can identify proteins with, with very high precision in that
0: yeah um I don't know. Jerm, you've written something here, and it just confused me. <laughs> so you're gonna have to read the next part because there's something about an apple, and it went into an extended metaphor, and I got a little yeah, bit. I,
1: lost um, let's go. <laughs> I want to like big problem with proteomics is that you um you can identify everything, and that's you might think that's that's good, but that means that um if you just mash down like entire plant and you do proteomics in it, you can find everything else in the plant, and that can be helpful, but very often is not. So the question is a good is, first step. The first step usually is to find, like, to limit the amount of, of proteins you put in there, so that whatever you identify has meaning meaning to you. And I came up with this idea that you, if you want to know what's like in an apple, um, if you take like if you take a whole tree, an apple tree, as an al- analogy for a cell, and you want to find what's in the apple, in the part of the cell, um, you could just like chop down the entire tree and take it apart and look at everything and then you also will look at parts of the apple but you won't know which part belongs to the actual apple so a clever much more clever way is to just pick the apple and then just analyze the apple however in the cell mm. just picking the apple is not that easy like i work with chloroplasts i had to go through like a process of uh, um of uh, isolating just the chloroplast bits that i was inter- uh, interested in and it was like a procedure it took me a whole day to just get that mm. before i could even put that on a fine scale a full day just getting that and that's often sort of the the crucial point the limiting point the point where your experiment works or doesn't work because um you have to get like the apple that you want to analyze
0: yeah and to to really um milk that metaphor even further um <laughs> one of the problems with mass spec is that it can't measure absolutely everything and the things that are more abundant are likely to get like they will get noticed but like things that are like less abundant they're less likely to get noticed so with your apple tree analogy if you put all of the apple tree into a mulcher and then like try to measure that or taste that you're going to mostly taste wood you're not going to actually notice that there's an apple in there because like 99 of everything is just like wood and the same thing is true for plants so if you put like an arabidopsis leaf through a mass spec machine effectively basically you see a whole lot of really abundant photosynthetic proteins things like rubisco which are just like everywhere these proteins are just like there there's huge amounts of them and you will never ever be able to find the tiny ones in amongst it and that's the second problem yeah
1: and so in this paper they did not just use proteomics they use proximity proteomics and that's one way of narrowing down the this list. They, it's a way to mark all the proteins that are around a specific protein. Um, for example, a tool that they used, and that's very commonly used, is using biotin. It's a type of molecule. What it looks like is not really important, but it's sort of um, a molecule that you can stick to other molecules, and then you can use that to isolate all of the molecules that you stuck this to. Um, mm-hmm. And when you do that in a way that this biotin sticking event only happens at a specific place and a specific time, then you can sort of create a little bubble and everything that's in the bubble is what you can measure.
0: <laughs> Sorry, I'm reading the notes and there's another really long metaphor coming up. So I'm just going to say the first bit, which is that this can be quite difficult because... Um how how close things are to get marked by this biotinylation, so this like to get tagged by the biotin, it's it's not really clear. There's kind of a cloud around like of things nearby that might get biotin. There's there's some idea that like the closer they are, the more likely that they are to get biotinylated, as it's called. So you can almost use how much of them is biotinylated as a proxy for the distance away from your sort of center point. Um But it's a little bit shady. It's not like super exact and it's a little bit artistic and there's a lot of like optimization of conditions that's also involved.
1: Yeah. And additional controls. Metaphor,
0: metaphor, metaphor. Yeah, my
1: metaphor that I came up with to sort of illustrate that because it's very abstract with like the biotin and so on but if you if you now look at your entire garden and you have names for everything in the garden and you know some of the functions of the stuff in the garden but not of everything and now you want to figure out um you you know that you have flowers on your tree and you want to figure out what's interacting with these flowers like is it is it a table is it a bug is it another plant something is interacting Mm. with it and you don't know what it is so you can set up a little like Timed explosive paint balloon, um, and at a certain point you just burst it, and it, spl- uh-huh. it it splashes red color everywhere in a in an area around it, and then you can just pick up all of the things that are red, and then look at them and be like, okay, all of the things that have red color on them, they were in the vicinity of my flower at the at the time I set it off, and so you will find some red red f- uh, paint on on the fence. Um, on some other plants, on some leaves of the tree, but also on some bugs that might be visiting the flower. And then now you have like a shorter list of things that can be potentially interacting and then you do additional experiments, and these are very important, these additional experiments to further narrow down the list, to exclude that the fence is interacting with your flowers, that the grass on the ground is interacting with your flowers and in the end you find that it might be the bugs that are interacting with your flowers. And it's in some way what you do with proximity proteomics. You mark everything that's around it and then you do more experiments to figure out what's going on.
0: I want to use a different analogy. So we have Yoram, and Yoram is our protein of interest, and we want to know who Yoram meets day to day. So Yoram's just moving around his neighborhood, moving around the cell, um, as it were, as our protein of interest, and we want to know who he's he's finding out. And that's quite difficult. So what we do is we put Yoram's small two-year-old behind Yoram, like, attach the child to Yoram. Maybe, like, it's hanging off his neck, maybe it's holding his hand. (laughs) And the child, so this is now an enzyme, this child that's attached to our protein of interest, Yoram, the child has a paintbrush in its hand. (laughs) And whenever somebody meets Yoram, the child can just dart out and put paint on that person. It's just like, I'm going (laughs) to keep using paint. And that to me is what what they're doing because they have a protein of interest. It's attached to this enzyme and the enzyme can modify the things that it comes in contact with. So when Yoram comes near something, it lets the enzyme come in contact. And again, with that analogy, like sometimes the toddler lets go of Yoram's hand and it's like goes a little bit further. Sometimes, you know, it like doesn't, it forgets to swipe its paintbrush. Like, this can all depend on the conditions that you use for your experiment. But, like, by and large, the presence of being swiped with the paintbrush means you've come close to Yarn Jorm because Yarn's a fairly good parent and he makes sure his child is, like, around <laughs> him and not running onto the road.
1: Yeah, no, that's a very good analogy. I quite like that. Thank you,
0: thank you. Um, so,
1: yeah, so that's in the end what they, what they did in this paper. They used this proximity proteomics approach um, of marking what's interacting with the specific thing and the thing that they chose is a phytotransferin. So one of these diatom-specific um, molecules that are taking iron from outside and putting it in the, into the, the cell. Uh, and they looked what's interacting with it because we don't know that yet before before okay. the study. We knew that the phytotransferins are important, a specific kind, the PTF is, is the name, um, but we didn't know what it's working with. Like, uh, and so that's what uh, what they studied in the paper.
0: Yeah, and just to kind of summarize, because the the as we said, <laughs> the results are, are great. It's kind of further the field, but it's just basically that they found some candidates. So they found things that did get biotinylated, so that did get slashed with red paint either by the bursting balloon in your arms analogy or by your arms small child holding a paintbrush. Um, and then they looked a little bit more into what these proteins are. So they looked like. If they were conserved evolutionary and similar organisms you know what they might their ecological function might be what sort of um features they had and they sort of said okay based on these different criteria this very controlled experiment and then sort of narrowing down on function we can now suggest um several proteins which we think are involved in this very important process yeah um and yeah as, as we said that that involves quite a lot of um Tweaking so this this method of sort of proximity based biotinolation I think it came out in twenty twelve it's not like super new. Um, I thought twenty twelve like
1: two years ago, but no, it's like nine years ago. Yeah, ten
0: years ago. It's almost um, a decade. <laughs> yeah, um, but it, it always it's always different for different organisms, and I think one thing they found here was that for them it actually worked much better if they did the whole reaction on ice that was like gave them much more efficiency than if they did like at room temperature I think was the alternative which is not necessarily what you'd expect and that was just to me was kind of an interesting tweak of like oh yeah we're not using Arabidopsis anymore <laughs> or whatever like we're not using mm-hmm. Drosophila or C. elegans so now suddenly the protocol has to be basically recreated from scratch you know you've got the, the ideas behind it and you've got to do different things and I'm not sure how difficult this was but that's kind of a theme in experimental biology that i enjoy
1: yeah i mean they were pioneers in that like the method of this type of proximity proteomics wasn't used in diatoms before like they were the first Mm -hmm. of their at at least they say in paper according to their knowledge the first ones to actually try it and succeed in it um which is yeah it like you get the fame of being the first one to do it but it also comes with like the whole um like optimization problems that you run into it can be a very frustrating way to pioneer things Um, but in the end if it works out it's like it's really cool because now you've shown how it works and other people can follow your footsteps
0: I do have one comment. So when I look at um development of methods, um, especially if it's something kind of cool and a bit newer, I'm always, always curious to see if there's overlap between the original authors who published the methods and the authors on the papers that subsequently use the method. Because that kind of gives an example of how easy that method might be to use and how sort of wildly widely taken up it is in the field. So in this case, there is an author overlap. So the person who sort of originally came up with the method i think in 2012 um the second author on that paper and somebody who then like also published the protocol is also one of the authors on this paper so it does like i don't know this method but when i see that i always think oh this might be quite tricky to do actually it might need some some quite specific expertise mm-hmm. to 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 get there yeah and I, that's also something i definitely saw in science where like there's a method that theoretically it can be done, but like some lab groups just really struggled to, to – like my old lab group, there was just a couple of methods that we just could not get to work. Like we just struggled to set them up. And, you know, other groups could do them, but there was like something special that you needed that was a little bit – it's a bit of that baking magic where it's like it's the feel of the thing and sometimes that's not always very – Possible to explain or very clearly explained in actual protocols. I
1: mean, it comes down to the f- to the point that some people then try to order the exact same charge of che- chemicals that other labs <clears> are throat> using, throat> mm-hmm. which can be very difficult, right? Like if um if they like if it, the experiment happened a couple of years ago, like try getting exactly the same kind of molecule um, still the same production well, one batch.
0: Of, one of my colleagues was um trying to do qPCR so it's a way to measure how many um mRNA how many like how transcriptionally active something is and she was using exactly the same kind of the same sort of samples all the same like reaction kits to make the the cdna you need um everything was the same the same machine like everything should have been the same it was in a different country but like all of the things were ordered to be the same in the end, the way that the uh, the water was being deionized was making her get completely different like outcomes. Like the the, the reaction was just not working properly. She was getting like poor values. Um, mm-hmm. and it was like it was still deionized water, but it was like yeah, differently de- like something slightly different.
1: Yeah, and so uh, yeah, transferring these like very specific skillful methods can be can be a major pain. So yeah, um, that's why sometimes they tend to stay within. The vicinity of the same group, much like <laughs> proximity proteomics, the knowledge <laughs> of the method of, method stays Tank. around <laughs> the core of it, of the people who developed it. Um, and only with time, like people, enough people learn the skills that it can actually like move to other labs, but still attached to people in some way. Um, yeah, I think... I think that's what we have about this paper, right? Um, that's Proximity Proteomics in a Marine Diatom Reveals a Putative Cell Surface to Chloroplast Iron Trafficking Pathway by uh, Tonsek et al., published in eLife in February this year.
0: Yeah. This
1: is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. <laughs>
0: Um, I have something which is not a little related to plants, so I'm going to say that really quickly. Um, (laughs) But it is related to something that we have just published on our blog. We finally got back to writing blog posts, and I wrote something about the way that um, plants sense when they might be invaded by an army of disgusting nematode worms. So nematodes can be pests of plants, and when plants... um, sort of feel them coming smell them coming almost they they sense the chemicals that the nematodes emit um they put up their defenses very rapidly so i wrote about that on the blog and a little bit related um there's just a paper that came out in scientific data in may this year and it's about the global abundance of earthworms um <laughs> and the biomass the biodiversity and corresponding environmental properties and it's, it's got a huge author this must have been a huge achievement um just as a reminder, like, earthworms are a different group. So it's like these segmented worms, which is different from nematodes, which are sort of simple tube worms. Um, but obviously, earthworms are insanely important for, like, their ecosystem engineers. They basically are, like, do a lot of very crucial functions. And they've they've looked at where all the worms are in the world, which I think is kind of cool. <laughs> and where are they all Oh, they're they're actually only in Germany. You can't find worms anywhere else. That's that was what they concluded. <laughs> I mean, they've got they've got ten thousand sites, one hundred eighty species, sixty countries, and all of the continents except Antarctica. I mean, they just missed out on Antarctica. That's that's a little bit disappointing. Authors, yeah, it's really um, hard to dig
1: in Antarctica because of all the frozen
0: ice. <laughs> try harder. I bet you there are nematodes in <laughs> there are definitely nematodes in Antarctica. Um, I don't know if. We actually don't know if there are earthworms in Antarctica, if they just didn't look, or if they think they're also—it's not worth looking. i am not sure.
1: Uh, I have um, an experiment uh, that I found quite uh, quite interesting. Um, it turns out that if you water your plants with water, they do best um, compared to if you water them with juice or with milk. Amazing! <laughs> and wow. I found that tweet. Um, and I, I mean. It sounds a little bit silly, but it's from like a science presentation from an eight year old. Um But what oh, I quite liked nice. what what I quite liked about this is that it was like really this thing was about teaching the scientific method. Uh, and usually when I see these like science fair experiments, it's like you put a little of, bit of baking powder in a volcano and then you put some vinegar on it and then it explodes with some colors. And then you're like, science. Oh my goodness. You guys,
0: have you heard Yoram's rant about science communication? You should hear it. He <laughs> yeah. has something against volcanoes and I cannot understand it. No,
1: I, I, I like volcanoes and so on, but just like making a volcano is not like... That's not science, but like in this. That's t-
0: chemistry. What's wrong with you? Just because no, there you, are not plants involved. If, if you
1: explain it, if you have like a hypothesis, if you're testing something, if you're testing different liquids, if you're testing like the pH, the the of the solutions that you use, which ones work best, then it becomes science. But if you just make something. What explodes, if I make
0: a volcano and then I lick it? Is that science now? Like, at what stage do I have to observe? If you, is, if you if obviously you write observing it down. with my eyes is not enough. If there's wow. there's,
1: a, there's a quote from uh, Adam Savage, and it's like I don't the, want to
0: use the f word, but what fascism <laughs> what am I hearing?
1: The difference between like screwing around and doing science is writing it down. And um No,
0: that's bull- <laughs> that's elitism. No, it's like if you
1: like writing it down can also be like consciously observing it. Um so <clears throat> But if you're just, like, making something that's, like, fun to look at when it explodes. Anyway, that's besides the point. What just, I want to say yeah, that is... Yeah, it's besides like,
0: the point because Yoram is wrong. Science is when you do something, you test something, and you observe it, and you might have a little thought. And if you have the tiniest of thoughts, you've already done science. Congratulations. Give yourself a little <laughs> star. And, like, inwardly poke your tongue out at Yoram's snobbiness. No, I think...
1: I mean, in and on one hand, I, I agree. But at the same time, I think... <laughs> like understanding the scientific method on the method, other hand
0: I think science should stay in the ivory towers no not I, for the common folk
1: no I think it should stay if in they like,
0: can't afford a pen and paper they shouldn't be allowed to do it
1: it should stay in science fairs or like start in science fairs where <laughs> you like in this case like the eight year old they wrote down like proper questions like a question can oh, plants survive down. being so that's, watered that's, with a different that liquid stage it,
0: became, it became science no, when they wrote it no it became when
1: when they were like. did they
0: write it properly with full sentences was their yeah. grammar correct
1: yeah and do they make
0: spelling mistakes?
1: So far I couldn't find any. Um they have a control. They define what is like the dependent variable and the independent variable, the procedure, their hypothesis, and then their conclusion. So they went with like Sorry, a full Sorry, I'm calling scientific- it one of
0: their parents helped them with that paper. <laughs>
1: I I can't exclude that, but so they... No
0: eight-year-old has ever come across the concept of an independent variable. I can barely understand what an independent variable is.
1: I imagine that they were talking about this at school. Um... (laughs) In this mm. case. I don't know. But like I like the hypothesis. Like the hypothesis. I thought milk would be the best. Because cows eat grass. And then the cow produces milk. Which contains nutrients from the grass. And that's why milk might be the best thing to water your plants with. It turns out it's the worst thing to to water your plants with. like <laughs> Fungus?
0: The, Fungus is a problem. In
1: this case they, they used sweet peas. And they just died when watered with milk. <laughs> so um, it turns out water which was the control did the best. Um, compared mm-hmm. to juice and milk, uh, but I still I quite liked it to see it in, in a science way. And you might be right that a parent might have played a role there. <laughs> I I'd like to like I saw this and was like, oh, this is so cool that like teaching the scientific method and uh, like I don't care if if they use like the, the proper terminology, but like sitting down and like thinking beforehand what you want to like what you're expecting then doing an experiment and then coming back to it and seeing like where you're right or where you're wrong with your assumptions and what is the thing that you observed this to me is the scientific method and i quite enjoyed seeing that in this case even though it's like a little bit of a silly experiment but i i hope that this eight-year-old like took something from it and it's like okay
0: nothing else they learned how to write
1: (laughs) yeah Uh, they learned how to write or they they have like some idea now if they see an experiment done elsewhere that they can sort of put that in context to some extent (laughs) i know children and so on and stuff what you learn in school is also what you forget very quickly but i i had nothing like this nothing remotely like this in my like what 13 years of school is
0: that why you're so angry about the volcanoes
1: yeah we had nothing like like proper like science education in terms of like understanding the scientific system that you can then transfer this knowledge on many different disciplines it was always just like learning some facts learning like the value of like uh earth gravity and then just that without learning like how would you set up an experiment what are the pitfalls what why would you need controls all of these things were stuff i learned not even in university i learned that when i was starting my phd which i found way too late if like some eight-year-olds are doing that already
0: i i'm just trying to think of the facts that i learned as a child and the only thing i can think of are really cliche things like don't leave your shoes outside. There will be spiders in them. Don't pick up pots. There will be spiders under the pots. <laughs> I mean, Check under the seat of the toilet before sitting down. There will be spiders I under mean, them. That's a
1: very Australian <laughs> education. <laughs> so
0: like, I think I was really... So, like, you know, with a pot, how it has that kind of rim around the edge of, of the, the plant pot. Like... That was just a common thing you learned as a child as Australia that you would never pick a pot up because that rim is a perfect space for like redback spiders, some of the poisonous ones in Perth, to to sit. And when I saw people like just picking up pots willy nilly in Germany, I was like, <laughs> "Did your parents not teach you anything? <laughs> like, how are you alive? <laughs> how has your gene line not died out by now?"
1: <laughs> yeah, it's very simple. Like fortune of birth of living in a country that has. I think no poisonous spiders, maybe like some super rare ones.
0: I saw a snake once in Germany.
1: Yeah, but...
0: Might have been a legless lizard, like lizard.
1: Yeah, and it was probably not poisonous or venomous or anything.
0: But divided by the amount of times I lived in Germany, compared to the number t- of snakes I saw in Australia, divided by the years I lived in Germany, I saw more snakes in Germany per year lived than I did in Australia. Yeah. Yes, the one in Australia was a tiger snake that could, like, kill me as soon as look at me. But, and possibly the one in Germany was dead and also a lizard. But <laughs> <laughs> more snakes per, per year. Okay. Um, Speaking of kind of this, like, idea of science as a sort of a thought experiment or sort of going and 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 working out things I found in an interesting title I was sort of trolling papers again and it's in the the journal called Bioengineered, which I've not heard of before I really am impressed by that title it's not just like bioengineering it's like bioengineered and it should almost have an exclamation it's like it's like we've done it (laughs) like complete it should have a tick or an exclamation mark after it um, but the it's a review and the review is on the question can algae contribute to the war on COVID nineteen, and this made me laugh. I have to say because I imagined like all of these little algae like dressing up <laughs> in mini swords and armor and like running into battle screaming at the virus. <laughs> and also like when you see a, a a scientific paper which has a question in the title. I kind of usually think that the answer is going to be probably not because like if it if it has like if it had found an obvious answer it would be like an affirmative statement.
1: I mean it's but always like when you see news headlines with a question you like no <laughs> no probably not.
0: Are ducks your enemy? I mean technically <laughs> they could be. Like we cannot rule it out but <laughs> But I think like there is this there is a space for this in science, right? Where so this is a kind of a review and it's looking at different ways that algae could be used, and it's it's it is that thing where it's like I it can be. I'm not think I don't think it's going to be very likely. They're talking about how like algae do have anti properties, and there's also other properties like um. Uh, sort of stickiness of algae that can be useful for things like antibody testing like there's there's properties of algae that could be useful and i think like this is a bit topical to put it in the context of covid but it is interesting to think about what we have around in the world around us and and how we can use it and you know sort of go that next step so sometimes i think i do enjoy these kind of thought process discussion papers where it's like well what about this thing like um yeah Mm -hmm. it's interesting
1: yeah uh, and so, can algae help us?
0: I mean, you'd have to read the article to find out, okay, obviously, no, I mean, th- as I said, they came up with like different possible like different things that it could be used in theoretically. But it didn't seem to me like any of those had like been developed. It wasn't like a thing that was happening. It was just mm-hmm. like, hey, like al like, I mean, algae are quite big right now in the context of like, food security, biofarming, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, COVID is also quite big right now, you might have noticed. So I think it, it does make... <laughs> it's not super surprising to see the marriage of the two, but... Yeah. yeah. Anyway.
1: I have a story that uh, one of our listeners, um, Yan Peng, sent us on Twitter, and I'm very grateful for that because it was a very interesting read. It's called um, Global Cactus Traffickers Are Clearing Out the Deserts. It's a New York Times article. And it's about um, the trafficking of cactuses or cacti, um, mainly from places like Chile, for example, or in general, like the Americas and the desert lands in the Americas, um, to collectors in Europe, in Asia, uh, who really like to have a, a, a very fancy cactus at home um, especially now with like the, the pandemic and the isolation time mm. many people started going really crazy for their indoor plants um, especially for social media. There is like a trend for <laughs> my, having like the fanciest plant on, on Instagram.
0: My life isn't feeling quite dangerous enough right now. Let's get a spiky, aggressive plant and put it right <laughs> next to my bed so I might fall on it. I
1: mean, c- cacti have this reputation of being very easy to care for because they like um, they evolve to need very little and last a very long time. You know
0: what? They're also easy to not care for.
1: Yeah, I mean... they. I'm not
0: interested in cacti. <laughs> I don't care sorry i continue um,
1: but yeah but i mean that's very good because then i know although like your your plant like your room is pretty much like 90 percent plant um there will be very few cacti in there and that reduces the chance that you have like some unethical cacti yeah you're showing me one did you where did you sow sir Tegan? is that from like a responsible nursery or did you take that from the wild and put that into your room
0: i didn't take it from the wild but i also don't want to say where i got it from <laughs>
1: Taking your part <laughs> of the problem, um, so there's a, there's like a big there's big business in in poaching these cacti in the wild, um, uh, and the the shops that are selling them they pretty much make no they don't re- even hide the fact that they don't have the proper papers for like international trade because most places ban the export of cacti from from mm-hmm. their land so you can't like Chile is not exporting any cacti still you can buy cacti that are sourced from Chile um, because the shops fear no persecution whatsoever and so they're just like selling them on eBay or Instagram, Etsy and Facebook and so on. Um, and that's a major problem um, because they yeah, these these cacti they are very slow growing. And mm. with like the, the increase in demand now there's a risk of like um, endangering some of these species. Some of them are like hyper-localized. They are only found in very specific small regions. And if now poachers come in and take a lot of them to sell them for for high prices, that of course damages their population in the wild to the point that it might collapse. And um, so... They that that's a major problem, and there has just been a, a, a big bust in Italy where they um like went into a greenhouse and and took a cacti, I think over a thousand cacti valued over a million euros in total, um because some of them were quite big and therefore quite valuable. Uh, and what they did um is not only <laughs>
0: how do you smuggle a cactus into the
1: very easily surprisingly because they do so well without resources. Okay, but with- your
0: um, your crevices. <laughs>
1: no. You just send them by mail. You just send them to a country like Romania that has very lax import um, uh, regulations.
0: I don't. I don't know if we should be naming and shaming Romania on the podcast. They, they, they they're named and
1: shamed in the article. I'm, I'm quoting from the article here. So. Um, they're saying like you're sending them to some countries in Europe, and then from there, you can then over the land where you can get them to Italy, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from there on, over oh,
0: Italy, th- also, Italy's also on your list. Of I mean, countries the, it was think. an
1: Italian greenhouse with like an Italian person, uh, running the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, having getting like weekly orders from like major shops that they were fulfilling. Yeah. Um, so, uh, like it's 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 a pretty big business but the the exciting thing about this story is that they're now sending the cacti back to Chile which is pretty much a first usually they um end up being sort of redistributed to to other greenhouses that, and, and like botanical gardens and so on. So mm. they're not being sold anymore. Or well, sometimes nothing even happens, um, especially uh, like very often, for example, in Italy, because they're talking about the country because that's where this this case happened. There's only like a five-year period after which you're, um, you can't be held accountable anymore for crimes against the environment. And therefore, mm-hmm. often the process of the police and everything is so slow that it's just like it passes and nothing happens really. them. Yeah, so nothing happens to the cacti and they, they continue to be sold. But in this case, they really wanted to make a stand, uh, a point here and they're sending them back and they're putting them back into the populations where they were taken from. So they're putting them in quarantine in Chile to make sure that they're not transferring any pests and then they're putting them back into the wild um, to make a point that um, this doesn't, like this crime doesn't pay and uh, the plants won't be taken forever away from, from the original place.
0: Their other cacti friend are going to be so jealous. Like, <laughs>
1: yeah. <branches around> the- <laughs> yeah, they took a big travel around the world. The most world.
0: well-traveled cacti. I mean, I've not been to Chile. Have you been to Chile? No, not yet. Mm.
1: But yeah, so that's, um, yeah. So if you, if you are into cacti, if you are into, into like weird plants, maybe like double check where you're buying your plants from. Like if you find like an Etsy mm. shop, an Etsy shop that has just like the, The most uh, hard-to-find plant, there is a chance that this is not legal and that you're harming uh, ecosystems by buying from these sellers. So make sure, even though it might look super cool on Instagram to have this plant, maybe don't buy it.
0: I mean, there's also been cases of people just, like, stealing them from botanical gardens, just, like, digging them up and taking them away. Um, I have something which is less of a sort of fact and more of just a news item that came out a couple of hours ago, I think, only – Um, So, there was a ruling in the European Parliament. Have you heard about this? Uh,
1: No, I don't know which one you're talking about.
0: Okay, so it's basically just um, about plant-based products. So, plant-based dairy has basically been... um, The word is censored that people are using. So, So, the milk industry is very angry um, about plant milks. This
1: makes me so angry <laughs> that they are angry. This, like, well, anyway, like, continue before yeah, I go so, like, into full rage mode.
0: So the cow milk, uh, we're going to call it the other industry, Um, they don't want plant-based milks to be called milk. They want them to be called like... Not milk. They wanted them to be called extract. I think they tried to go for like all like juice, like oat juice. Like they tried to really like force the most disgusting words on them. They also don't want descriptive words like creamy, um, buttery, or even a vegan alternative to yogurt. Is the example used in this article? So like you can't even say this is an alternative to the product because by mentioning the product, you're somehow oh, offending the so the angry. cow's udder. Um, and then on top of that, you're also they don't want that plant based milks can go into cartons because by putting it in a carton it looks too much like milk because milk is usually in a carton it's like juice is also in a carton like if it's what do you, what do you want? <laughs> like, um. So the, the the good thing is that um that got turned down basically. Um,
1: uh, th- thank God! <laughs> <laughs> thank God. Um,
0: so it was it was Amendment One Seven One, and I like that it was dubbed um the plant based dairy censorship by the campaigners who were like sort of working on the other side. But yeah, they they basically it seems to have been rejected. Um, a little while back they also rejected this other proposal and this was that you can't call a vegetable burger a vegetable burger or a vegetable sausage because like sausage and burger are protected terms which like you guys they're not get over yourself uh, but so this is actually kind of a good sign and they sort of the argument was like hey if if we as the european union are trying to promote sustainability trying to limit the consumption of plant-based products is exactly the opposite of that. It's hypocritical and it's it's just objectively wrong. Um, so it's it's good that things are moving that direction. It's a bit disappointing how strong the lobbying power of the dairy and meat industry is. Um, but nicer things are changing. And I also saw an article that's kind of related, which is that um, KFC in China has partnered with Beyond Meat. So this is these people who mm-hmm. have plant-based meats um, to do some sort of beefy product over there so it seems like this is kind of just growing and growing and growing which is only a good thing honestly
1: yeah i'm uh, like i'm not lactose intolerant or anything but just out of spite against this milk industry i'm not (laughs) buying any like regular milk anymore like i'm still like i'm still eating cheeses so i'm like still a little bit um culpable for like dairy consumption but uh I, I hate it so much that they're making such a big fuss about it and they're always calling like, "Ah, oh, we want to avoid con- confusion with customers when they're constantly coming up with like stupid new products that they're advertising for. I mean, nobody's
0: for. confused. Like nobody's looking at like a picture of an oat on a cart and be like, is that what a cow looks like? I'm so confused. Yeah. The word milk is right there. Like, no. Yeah,
1: it's called oat milk. <laughs> is that like, is oat the name of the cow? Like, like oat scarfunkel? Is it like, is it like related? Um, So yeah it's i'm happy that they that they lost this case because like yeah that that made me so angry for such a long time um that they're making that much of a fuss about it on an up note i recently had like one of these like uh plant-based burger alternatives it was so amazingly delicious that i i don't want to have meat anymore on a burger like for a long time it was sort of okay like okay to eat delicious to eat but like a good meat-based burger would still take the point but now i have one um from from one of the brands that you get here in the supermarket was like why would i eat meat again which brand? like which brand is it it was like garden paradise or some like stupid mm, generic that stupid name um but <clears throat> i was like yeah this is like yeah my 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 summers are set now like if i fire up the barbecue there will be no meat-based burgers on that like because why why would i So from things that are delicious to things that smell like dead insects, I found a story about the first plant um, that was found to reek of dead organisms, but not just like regular mammals like you have found very often, to dead invertebrates. Um, So the plant is called uh, Aristolochia microstoma. was found in uh, spotted in Greece, and um, it's a plant that has a very peculiar smell, and that smell is the smell of dead insects or dead invertebrates, um, which is. Weird because usually plants, when they try to mimic dead things, they try to mimic uh, feces or dead mammals to attract, Mm. like, the flies that would usually come to these, um, to like feces or dead mammals. Um, so they would trick them so that they would land on the flower instead. Uh, In this case, they're trying to smell like that other, like, like that insects and to attract a very specific uh fly, the coffin fly. And um, the coffin fly would then come because it's attracted to that that organic matter and then would be trapped inside the the the, the flower for a little bit would release whatever pollen it has loaded on it and then eventually it will be released again um covered in pollen from the plant Mm. that it just landed on and then the cycle continues it flies to the next one gets tricked again uh and so on and yeah, it's just like a weird looking plant. It's like the flowers are underground, kind of brownish between like other rubble and dirt. It's really like mixed in with lots of other sort of dirt and organic matter, um, emitting that smell, attracting coffin flies, and then getting fertilizers way.
0: It's interesting because we actually know that genus. We've talked about it before. It's this Dutchman pipe. So it has this mm-hmm. sort of very wide open, um, sort of um, maroon. And web-looking thing, and they're usually creepers, right? They're sort of usually hanging yeah. off things. Very beautiful. Yeah, and I
1: think many of its relatives also use sort of the smell of dead mammals and other sort of dead things, but never dead invertebrates. And in this case, it's like there's some compounds, and they make very specific. To oh, somebody should do a paper on like,
0: you know, there's always these these statements where like C4. Um, photosynthesis has evolved independently 63 times somebody should like work out how many independent times smelling like death has evolved like that's (laughs) there are quite some plants that use that right but it's 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 independently evolved like there's things like um rafflesia which have got that there's you know these dutchmen like there's quite some different i don't think those are closely related
1: I don't know. Um, (laughs) I'm not a good botanist. But um, yeah, it's it's definitely like it's, it's quite widespread and also like across the globe and so on. So in very different populations, you always um, have some plants that have this tendency to evolve towards smelling like death and rotten Mm. and and for us disgusting but very specific to to flies uh, because flies are like the second most important pollinator after bees and in some areas they might even be more important than bees uh, for the pollination so whatever flies like is what the plants have to mimic and many flies like um to go for like rotten organic matter
0: uh, that's kind of a nice way to segue into my method of the week, Yoram. <laughs> time for oh. guessing.
1: <laughs> I should I should get a buzzer sound on my little soundboard here. I don't have one yet, but I maybe for next week I'll have one.
0: Okay, <laughs> so you're going to need to find yourself a bird, a bat, or a bee if you don't have original synthetic will do just as well
1: (laughs) but you can't call them bird you have to call him like a nerd or something
0: (laughs) (laughs) bird but like with a u bird
1: (laughs) 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 to avoid customer confusion who want to buy a bird but they want to get the real thing (laughs) anyway Um. so a bird a bat or a bee
0: no, realistically, you've decided that the bird and the bat are a little bit too hard to work out. You were also supposed to get a moth, but like somebody dropped the ball there. So instead you're going to call out I'm your <laughs> call out your friend Dave, and he's got like a kind of keyboard and a mixing tape set up, so you're fine. You've got some like alternatives. But you did <laughs> remember a single hovering honeybee. So what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to get your bee, and you're going to want to let it hover. <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of listen for a bit, you know. You enjoy the sound. You might want to record what's happening, but like listening, recording—that's what we're going to be doing. Mm-hmm. So you get your B sounds <laughs> and you get your friend Dave's mixtapes, and you're going to need <laughs> to have an Anethera drum on uh, drum on DI. Do you know what Anethera is, Yoram?
1: Uh, yeah, I, it's it's Evening Primrose. That's related. the one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I took embarrassingly long to remember that working closely with people who worked on this kind of plant in the past. But anyway, I got there.
0: Okay, so you get your onothera. You let your onothera to listen to some sweet sweet tunes. Uh-huh. Then you put the cup over the onothera. It puts the cup on the onothera and you play back those sweet sweet tunes. <laughs>
1: And you, I use, look at the pheromones that are released, like the, the the volatiles in the
0: close. cup. We l- use laser vibratronomy mm-hmm. to check out how the flower is dancing to those beats.
1: So there's some sort of like resonance effect happening, like the 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 bees hovering and the vibrations are translating to the flower and it bounces like in the, in a particular rhythm. That the bee can sense and realize, oh, that's the right flower because other flowers would like wiggle. Other way around,
0: um, and then your final measurement.
1: <laughs> other way
0: around, <laughs> okay. Your a final measurement. I mean, there's just there's a missed opportunity about vibrations and wetness, but you're <laughs> measuring how much sugar is produced by the flower.
1: <laughs> okay. So. What's happening? The flowers, like, you're measuring the response to, of the flowers to the hovering of the bee. And, I mean, you're using the stand-in with the sound generation to get, like, a very consistent, like, wave, like waves of no, sound. Now, you just,
0: like, realistically, you found a bee, but you just couldn't find a moth. So, those other two sounds are, like, mimicking yeah. non-bee other things that yeah, you just so d- forgot to collect. I mean, you couldn't collect.
1: <laughs> you sent different, like, waves, like, pressure waves, which are sound, onto the flowers and you see how they respond. And mm-hmm. then you see if the plant can sense the differences through some sort of like mechanosensing, like something that mechanically senses how quickly it vibrates and then produces more or less sugar so mm-hmm. that it becomes more it- or less attractive uh, to to the pollinator. So if the, like, the right pollinator is around the plant would make more sugar so the pollinator has a higher chance of coming there and if there's like something else that's not as good as pollinating because it doesn't fit the flower right but it could still steal the nectar it's withholding the sugar to make sure that um to to not waste any resources on something that doesn't actually work well as a pollinator
0: yeah now i want to sound i want that one's like like this little like You know what I'm doing. You can hear it in the sound. Yeah, you're basically (laughs) exactly right. They weren't really comparing the different pollinators so much, but they were more kind of testing the general concept that the vibrations in the air was enough to stimulate the flowers to produce pollen. So there's kind of this vibration in the air from a bee flapping its wing. If a bee flaps its wing in the forest, then it vibrates through the air. It makes the the, the flowers themselves vibrate a bit. And that seems to um, induce... Sweeten nectar production within just three minutes. So and this as it says it's rewarding the bees so it could also like induce photo pollen So it's a win-win scenario basically. Um you've not got your pollen just kind of sitting around getting gross um mm-hmm. until the bee flaps around. So that was the the study. It's called Flowers Respond to Pollinator Sound Within Minutes by Increasing Nectar Sugar Concentration. And it's actually a bit of an older one, it came out um a couple of years ago in Ecology Letters.
1: So have well I, 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 I like I haven't opened it yet um, but it was on the Google research page for just like be hovering sound because I was wanted to see if I could like find something and play it live I couldn't mm-hmm. but it was on a result page so it was just like oh, these cool. three words I could find <laughs> like I didn't read it I want to make it clear like I didn't quickly read the whole thing and you then like cheat came is what up you're with saying <laughs> Did I you didn't cheat? cheat this time um, but yeah really really cool um, yeah I find it crazy these these sort of um like we had a story on a blog in the past about caterpillars like eating and just the vibration of them eating was enough to trigger some defense response in the plants if i remember correctly so they did did some experiments where they essentially poked a plant in the same rhythm <laughs> As a caterpillar would when it was like eating the leaves without any of the saliva, any of like chemicals chemicals that could be excreted by the, by the bug. It would just be like the stick poking it very rapidly. And that was enough to trigger the plant defenses. Like these mm. microscopic vibrations um, are sensed in some way by the plant. I find that so crazy to imagine because like
0: i think that the even better one is when they sense that and then instead of just like defending themselves directly they send off something like a signal to attract like a wasp that will then eat that caterpillar like that's the kind of the favorite thing they're like call Mm -hmm. on the wasps and then the wasps come and eat the caterpillar
1: yeah yeah these are these crazy sensory like (laughs) signaling (laughs) pathways where i'm just like wow like I had no idea that plants could do this sort of thing. I thought they were just like sitting there photosynthesizing, and then that's it. (laughs) Wow, you're. (laughs) But I think we had enough stories to show that they do a little bit more than that. But especially when it comes to like mechanics, like plants are always this like immobile, non-moving thing that we think of like naively. Uh, when in fact, like I mean, they do move through through growth, but they also sense mechanical stress. They they sense when their leaves can are, are touched or when like there are specific vibrations and they can react to that. Um, and yeah, I I like to be reminded of that from time to time because I tend to forget. <laughs> Just like, what do they care if I brush them?
0: Um, I wanted to mention a very quick paper that I found just when I was again trolling the interwebs. Um, there was a paper that was published in October this year. That's confusing. Um, in the Journal of Nanoscience and Nanotechnology. Everything, like, they advance published these days, and I just end up very confused about what month I'm in. Um, <laughs> <Yeah. and laughs>
1: they published this in the past and the future.
0: Yeah, like, what? <laughs> um <laughs> It's called The Effects of Graphene Oxide on Germination and Early Growth of Plants. And I was just like, I I, I only stopped to look at the abstract because it just seemed like the most bizarre thing. Like, graphene is kind of this super thing you know we mm-hmm, discovered it can it, do everything it, we discovered it like not that long ago and there's just every single application you can think of like you know you thought of it graphene can already it's it not only can it do it it's already done it it's been doing it um, <laughs> while you were busy thinking about it graphene just got up and like solved that problem <laughs> for all of humankind and so i was kind of like curious about like what are we now using graphene oxide to stimulate plant growth and germination. Like, what, what, what can graphene not do? And the answer also is nothing. What, can do anything.
1: What is graphene oxide? I thought, like, graphene is, is carbon, and mm-hmm. carbon oxide is CO2. I and think CO2 is what plants eat. But no, it must, no, it's it not CO2, CO2, it's CO. But it's... Okay, but it's still a gas. It's still. But
0: wait, it has different ratios. Wait, it can be C2... It's C2O to C3O somewhere. So there's... Okay, so there's, like, some... Graphene oxide is mainly, yeah, it has a C to O ratio between 2.1 and 2.9, but it also has these COOH groups on it somehow. Okay. It's basically all these hexagons.
1: Yeah, so all the carbons are sitting together in this, like, hexagonal shape, and then some of them are being replaced by oxygen or hydroxygen in this case like i think just the ones on the
0: edges but i think it's like the the point of the graphene oxide is it's this like sort of single layer that's like Mm -hmm. super thin and that's why it has all these sort of properties where it's very slippery and um i don't i don't know special (laughs) has special surface properties it's like
1: insulating but also a superconductor but also like uh, inert and whatever it's it can do everything as you said but so what does it do for plants
0: Oh, right, now I'm getting confused between graphite oxide and graphene oxide. Is that different? Graphene, uh, graphene sheets. is
1: like the layer thing. Yeah, that's graphite the sheet. is the one that you have in a pencil.
0: Yeah, so this is the graphite graphene oxide, but I don't know chemically what that difference is. Except, is it just structural, or is it also? Uh, if you know chemistry, get in <laughs> touch with me. I had to learn this all in 2006 and f- probably forgot it all the day after my exam. Cool. Um, anyway, I was a little <laughs> bit curious as to what graphene oxide could actually be doing for plants. As it turns out, it's actually kind of an environmental um, protection testing sort of thing. So the idea is of the paper is basically that graphene oxide has all of these amazing mechanical and thermal characteristics, and therefore basically everybody is using it everywhere. And so because of that, the scientists were kind of testing if, you know, having graphene oxide sort of spilling out into our agricultural fields might actually be problematic for plant germination. And I think the findings are not very um, surprising. They looked at lettuce, radish, um, ryegrass, alfalfa and cucumber and just treated them with different amounts of G.O. graphene oxide. And like perhaps unsurprisingly, they found that they could get like inhibition on the length and the growth of, of some of the some of the species under some of the treatments. And I think that's I think that's not surprising. Like if you add enough of something, you kind of will get a, an inhibitory effect, so I don't think that's like particularly amazing, mm-hmm. but it was one of those things where I was like, but what is graphene doing now? <laughs> Who knows.
1: <laughs> Cat fact.
0: Cat fact. Um you're um you're a snob um and you like food. <laughs> Do you know what kokumi is?
1: Kokumi? No. It's it's not kokuma, right? I know kokuma.
0: Cool. (laughs) Do you know what umami is?
1: Yeah. Umami is like the fifth or sixth uh, flavor that we can taste.
0: Well, time to meet number six and or seven, depending on how we were counting. um, (laughs) Kokumi. Okay. (laughs) Um, Umami is sort of that savoury, meatiness kind of flavour. And there's also kokumi, which is also a Japanese word. It means sort of rich or delicious taste. And yeah, it gives this like complexity, body or richness to a food. So that's kind of a different taste sensation. And the cat fact I um, came across today was based on sort of measuring how cats can perceive kokumi it came out in scientific reports um in may this year and basically so um yeah kokumi is this enhancement of sweet salty and um so basically like an increase in the richness and the flavor of things and there's calcium sensing receptors which have been sort of suggested to be what's involved in sensing kokumi for humans Um, And the study basically compared what we know in humans with domestic cats, Felis catus, which um, they said a model carnivore. They basically reasoned that because cats are obligate carnivores, they only do eat meat. um, They should be eating a lot of these proteins and peptides and amino acids, which are being sensed by these taste receptors and involved in this like sensing of kukumi. And, um, Yeah, they use different approaches to look at this, but basically they found that there was sort of, um, yeah, so it's like sort of similarities in the way they they receive the signals, but they sort of have different sensitivity for different molecules, sorry. So like cats are sensitive to calcium chloride, um, whereas they don't have um, glutathione sensitivities where humans sort of have their first thing. Mm -hmm. So it's just sort of looking at this kokumi thing. And it's interesting to me because I had never heard of Kokumi before. And now now I'm going to go and read about that and be really obnoxious at the next dinner party I go to.
1: I think with that we can move on to to the outro. Um, so thank you for <laughs> listening to us. Um, if you want to get in contact with us, if you want to, what what, what, what was it that they should correct? Like our understanding of chemistry. Uh, if you want to tell us what graphite or graphene mm-hmm. is, uh, you can reach me on Twitter. That's at PlantsPipettes
0: you know the best thing to do would tweet that because if you're going to spend more than was it 242 characters explaining to us we're not gonna that's not gonna work (laughs) for our schedules (laughs) yeah and we're also not going
1: to understand it it's like two big words Um, where Um, can people reach you
0: Oh, sometimes I'm on Facebook But, you know, less and less Because Facebook is a hellhole um, And usually I'm on Instagram So it's at Plants and Pipettes On both of those
1: So yeah, we also have a blog And yesterday we published a new article It's talking about microscopic worms that can sometimes be also uh, bigger than microscopic guys, guys,
0: the funny thing is like We published it yesterday When you're listening to this But maybe not if you listen to it On Saturday or Sunday or Monday But actually we haven't published it yet In real time <laughs>
1: <laughs> we're recording this before the event of the publishing and so when Tegan says like when Tegan was doing like the smart thing of talking in the past my smooth brain was like what's going on it's not online he yet
0: looking- sorry I'm sorry I'm the worst I'm really not a supportive host am I <laughs> It's fine. When I have a child, you will be so smug for like ten years time when I'm, <laughs> I'm deprived <of> sleep deprived and sleep.
1: No, like I'm 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 happy to um, show show my 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 lack of understanding of time here. So yeah, it's a new article. It's about nematodes, these like very cool, very abundant worms, and how plants can smell them when they're yeah. near. Um, it's pretty much like the blade in the like Lord of the Rings thing that's like glowing or whatever when orcs are near. The plants are pulling up their defenses when nematodes are near. Um, it's exactly the same thing. So yeah, check out plantsandpipets.com is what I wanted to say. And also, um, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. You can find uh, ways to support us um, under this in the show notes. The best way is to tell your friends about us. That would be really nice. And I think that's it. Goodbye.
0: Bye.